wherever we are. Amen and amen. All right, again, good morning. Thank you once more for just taking the time, making the time to join with us today for worship and for the study of God's Word. And I hope you have a a copy of God's Word somewhere nearby you, a Bible that you can open up or scroll to as the case may be. And assuming that's the case, I want you to meet me this morning in James chapter 2. I want you to find your Bible, turn to the New Testament, to the book of James chapter 2, where yes, this morning, those of you who have been with us for a while now, we are returning to our, our temporarily delayed study in the book of James. We got started in it near the beginning of the year. We were making good time, making good progress. We'd gotten through chapter 1, and then all of this that we've already mentioned in several ways this morning came about. So we paused our study of James, and we began to look at other things in God's Word that seem to speak to the needs and the opportunities of the moment over the past four or five Sundays, how to live, how to respond, how to operate in this season of all that it involves that we aren't going to take the time to rehearse right now. And, and as you know, uh, Pastor Greg preached last week, uh, did a wonderful job, again, just directing us to set our mind on things above. And so as I came back in this week, having stepped away for a few days, I was praying, I sought some wise counsel, and, and it seemed like the Lord was saying, now would be a good time to go back to our study of James, to not necessarily to normal, but to something familiar. And of course, if circumstances warrant, if things begin to change again in the weeks to come, we'll gladly pivot away from James and come back to our, our going viral theme, if, uh, again, if, if that seems to be what God wants us to do. But for now, and for the foreseeable uh, next few weeks, we're going to be back in James and picking up where we left off at the start of James chapter 2. Now, I'm going to read the passage in a moment. We're going to look at the first nine verses of James chapter 2 in just a moment. But let me preface, I guess, just continue in the vein I was speaking here over the last couple of of minutes to to simply say to you that, that when we began our study of James back at the end of January, you know, none of us None of us could have anticipated the ways in which, the many different ways in which we would have opportunity to imply, to apply James' instruction that came to us at the beginning of the chapter to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. We could not have seen or imagined what that would involve in the very immediate future. Nor do I think we could have imagined many of the opportunities that God was going to bring all of our way, in different ways, of course, in different contexts, to be sure, but to put into practice what James said at the end of James chapter 1, verse 27, when he affirmed for us that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, that the kind of religion God wants from his people is the kind that runs toward needs, the kind that seeks out those who need help, that ministers to others. We've had opportunity, many of us, I'm sure, to practice that, and You know, back in January, I have to think that if anybody had tried to tell us of all the challenges that the month of February and then even more in the month of March and perhaps even further still the month of April, all the challenges these recent months would bring our way, I have to guess, as I've thought about it somewhat, that we would probably struggle to understand, to grasp how things like social distancing and and home quarantining and economic turmoil and all the rest that's come with us is going to enable us or would enable us to flourish, our theme of flourish, as followers of Jesus Christ. I think we just would have found that hard. But here we are this morning at the start of chapter 2, 
And I firmly believe that what I said, that what I shared with you at the beginning of the start of chapter 1 still applies. That this book of James, by way of review or by way of introduction, if you've only joined us over the past couple of Sundays, that this book of James was written by an exceptional man, James, the half-brother of Jesus, the earthly half-brother of Jesus. One of the, the early church, one of the first truly devoted and, and committed and, and open followers of Jesus Christ when the church began 2,000 years ago. He was a, an exceptional man, and, and it still holds true that, that in his day, 2,000 years ago, he was writing to real-world believers. He was writing to people who were seeking to figure out, how do we live out this faith in Jesus Christ in a fallen world? In their case, much of the fallenness was demonstrated in hostility and, 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 and persecution and oppression. But he was writing to real-world believers. And because their lives were hard, because they were, in fact, in the midst of various trials, they needed godly counsel. They needed to know what God had to say to them about how to live out their faith, how to move toward maturity in difficult times and in a fallen world, how they could live so as to flourish as followers of Jesus. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that while the, the particulars of our circumstance today differ greatly from theirs, what we do have in common with James' original audience is that we're living in perilous times. More than perhaps almost all of us at any other time in our lives before are living in a season, in a moment in history where we genuinely don't know what tomorrow, next week, next month is going to bring. Now with that said, one of the things that's often celebrated, and some of this is by way of review, but it's also going to usher us right into where we're headed this morning. One of the things that is most often, most highly celebrated about the book of James itself is its intensely practical nature. I said to you several times as we made our way through chapter 1 that, that, that James is as close as we have anything in the Bible we have to a how-to manual for the Christian life, you're just not going to find anything that from cover to cover is perhaps more practical than James. And that's a good thing. He, he talks to us about things we, we, we understand in, in words that make sense to us. But as I was thinking about that again this week in, in venturing myself just back to James's letter, I realized that the flip side of that wonderful practicality or that very pointed instruction that all of us can hear and understand and take hold of the flip side of that is that quite often James tends to hit us where it hurts. <laughs> he speaks to us in places that are sensitive in our hearts. And I say that because that's exactly what's about to happen in this morning's text. Whereas as chapter 2 opens, he begins to dig into the issue of playing favorites in the family of God. Playing favorites in the local church, and beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, reading through verse 9, this is what the Bible says. James writes, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Become judges with evil motives. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You've dishonored the poor man. 
Is, not the rich, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. There's a lot to absorb there. A lot for us to consider. But for the sake of trying to to imitate, to follow James Knack for clarity and brevity and simplicity, what I've attempted to do this morning in in bringing this passage, what it says to you is, is try to distill what James says in these nine verses down to really three key observations. Three key things that, again, as, as followers of Jesus, or maybe you're curious about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but as those who want to heed the call to flourish, to move toward maturity, and live well for the Lord in a broken world, I think there's really three things here that we need to take hold of in the passage. And the first of which is this, is just what he's talking about, which number one is the problem of partiality. That's the issue James is dealing with here today. Very clearly, the problem of partiality. Let me ask you a question. And this question will probably resonate more with some of us of a certain age than others. But, but when you were growing up, perhaps, did you ever buy a, a record album, if you were in my generation, buy a CD, on the strength of one really great song you heard on the radio? Man, you heard that song, and you're like, I, I, got, I got to have more than that. And so you go out, you hear the one song, you go out and buy the You buy the vinyl record album, you buy the CD, you do whatever it is you do, only to come home, open it up, throw it on, and realize that was the only good song on the album. (laughs) To realize that the other 9, 10, 11 songs were what they kind of gently refer to as filler. Um, I've had that experience, maybe you have too, in in that way or or in some other. And The the reason I ask you just to think in those terms for a moment is because I want to very firmly assure you that that is not the deal here in the first four verses of chapter 2, that what James writes about here, what he is referring to, is not a theoretical problem. is not a hypothetical situation of, 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 of a problem that could emerge, maybe crop up in certain local churches at various points in time, and, and, and it's something that only a few of us have to deal with, but for the rest of us, it's, it's just out there, and, and we may, may really never encounter something like this at all, that it's just filler. No, not at all. In fact, as one authority on the Greek language says that the, quote, the construction here of James chapter 2 verse 1 is written so as to, to make clear that James is forbidding, he is speaking of and forbidding a practice already in progress. He's talking about something that was already going on. And I find that striking because as I said a moment ago, James, one of the one of the early church leaders. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He was in on the action of the early church, if not from day one, from very close, close, closely after that, at the, at the start of the church. He was recognized as the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was known to be a devout man, faithful and fervent in prayer. And it occurred to me, you know, if favoritism, playing favorites, partiality was a problem in James's church... <laughs> then it's going to be a problem in our church and in any other church. If it can happen there, it can happen here. It can and, in fact, does happen 
everywhere. And I thought about that particularly based on the example. And we're going to talk more about the example James used here in a moment. But when he, he raises it or he illustrates it with the example of a rich man and a poor man walking into the same church, presumably on a Sunday morning, and, and how they're treated. And I thought, you know, that's a, a particularly poignant, a particularly relevant scenario for us. Because you may not know this, but, but the fact of the matter is this. Literally, if you were to walk out one set of doors here at our home base, our sanctuary at Maranatha Bible Church, where we're located, where God put us to serve Him and to worship Him together, and you went one block that direction, you begin to encounter homes that are being built. Many of you know this. And, and I've checked into it. I've looked at the listings. The homes being built one block that direction, they begin somewhere at $350,000. They go to $400,000. Somebody told me last week of a, of a home about five blocks that direction, a million dollars to live there. And literally, if you go out the other set of front doors and go less than one block in that direction, and I know this because I've sat down and talked with the principal of the elementary school just down the street, you walk into that direction a school district that is in, economically, financially speaking, the bottom 5% in the entire state of Iowa. We literally, in a five-block radius in any direction, we have some of the wealthiest and some of the neediest people within walking distance of our... So what James talks about here in verses 2 through 4, it could happen any given Sunday here. A rich man and a poor man could walk in the door side by side. A rich woman and a poor woman could walk in the door side by side. And in that moment, we would have opportunity. We would have be presented with the chance to, to do exactly or to respond exactly as James would call us to do here. How are we going to treat people based on how they present themselves to us? Are we going to be tempted in any way to play favorites? But you know what we should also see in verses 2 and 3 and 4 is that, is that favoritism based on finances and economics is actually just one scenario among many that could afflict a local church. Because look at the language again. This is important. He says in verse 1, My brethren, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For, now if you've got the ESV, the English Standard Version, I, I, I believe it says suppose. I think in the, the NIV it says for example, in other words, I'm going to illustrate what I'm talking about here with one of many different possible examples. He just goes to finances because it's one that we can all easily and readily understand. But what James wants us to know is that there are all kinds of ways in which the, the problem of partiality, the problem of personal favoritism can afflict a local church. Because you see, the, the Greek root of, of the word partiality or personal favoritism, whatever your English translation of the Bible, however it renders it there at the end of verse 1. The literal meaning of it is to accept the face, to accept the face. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you, and frankly, it doesn't, didn't mean much to me either. So as I dug a little bit further, what I realized is, is probably we would better understand or define the term as to look with favor on another person. To look with favor on another person, specifically the nature of the term is based on externals. Based on that which our eyes can see, our ears can hear, our noses can smell. 
And we encounter a person, and, and based on what we see, we, we either accept the face or we don't accept the face. We look with favor or we do not look with favor. In other words, in a moment of time, we see a person, and this could apply within the church or without. He's obviously writing in context of the church, but he's saying this. We must be careful when we see another person's face, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, whether I'm going to be more friendly toward you, more open with you than I am toward others based on that which I can see, on any number of things, your personality, your politics, your philosophy of parenting or, or of education, your financial standing, your recreational activities. In short, what James is talking about here when he says, do not hold your faith in Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, he says, in short, he says, don't be the kind of person, the man, woman, teenager, young person, as a follower of Jesus who pursues others in the body of Christ primarily, if not exclusively, on the basis of what they can do for you, of what they can do for me to play favorites. Don't pursue people because in talking to them, they always manage to massage your ego. Don't play favorites with people because, perhaps because of their material abundance or supply, they're able to shower you with little gifts or material blessings, and that's really the basis of the friendship. Don't pursue people because in the body of Christ, whether they're a visitor or a regular, because somehow being seen with them elevates your status. It, it makes others see you in a better light. Don't pursue them in the body of Christ because ultimately, if I cozy up to them, well, there's a phenomenal business opportunity that I can pursue there as well. While at the same time, brushing by others altogether because they don't do anything for you. Because they don't do anything for me. You know, a number of years ago, one of my kids who will remain nameless, but his preschool class was doing the Christmas play, the, the, the true Christmas play, the story of the birth of Jesus. And, and this particular child of ours, all of them were in it at some point, but this one drew the, the role of the innkeeper. And, uh, and as the innkeeper in this preschool Christmas play, he had one line. And his one line was this, that when Joseph and Mary, with you know, the pillow under her dress, came to the door, knocking at the end to see if there was room, he was supposed to open the door, and he had one line to deliver, and that was supposed to be this, what can I do for you, sir? And, and, and the big moment came, and as a parent, I was a little anxious for him, as I always am when my kids are in that situation, and Joseph and Mary waddled up to the door, they knock, he opens the door as the innkeeper, and, and instead of, uh, what can I do for you, sir, coming out of his mouth, he said, what you gonna do for me, sir? What are you going to do for me? And, and I think that's exactly the attitude James is talking about here. Do I look at my brothers and sisters in Christ on the basis of what you want to do for me? Now, don't misunderstand. James isn't saying that you have to try to be everybody's best friend. James, nor is he saying that, 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 it, that it's wrong to have close friends, to be closer with some people than others. That's just a fact of life. It's not wrong to have maybe a, a small group or, or a small circle of, of fellow men or fellow women or fellow teenagers with whom you're a little more open, with whom you share more of your life. That's just going to happen. We're going to be naturally closer with some people than with others. But what he is saying, and here's what I meant when I, by, by saying that oftentimes James will hit us exactly where it hurts, 
is that any form of preferential treatment toward regular attenders who are in the pews with you every Sunday, toward a first-time visitor who something about them grabs your attention, any sort of preferential treatment whatsoever makes us look at what he said in verse 4. Because these are not my words, these are his. It says, when you make distinctions among yourselves, you become judges with evil motives. In other words, playing favorites is sin. Partiality is sin. It harms you, it harms me, it marginalizes others, it, it, it carves up the church, it, it ultimately unravels our witness. And, and, and the message is simply this, what James is saying is, hey gang, understand, favoritism kills flourishing. You as a believer, you as a church, you cannot flourish as followers of Christ if favoritism is running unchecked in the family. And that's why the second thing he directs us to in verses 5 through 7, having laid out, having exposed the problem of partiality. And you can remember, if it can happen in James's church, it can happen in mine. It can happen in yours. It can happen among us. James says, that's why I need you to take some time and think on and respond to the principle of mercy. The second thing we need to see here is the principle of mercy. Again, verses 5 through 7. Let's just read them. Follow along one more time. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world, the poor of this world, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name, that is the name of Jesus, the name Christian, by which you have been called? Now, I want us to be very, very careful that none of us make James say something here that James isn't actually saying here. Because, because the message of verses 5 through 7 is not. Everybody at home say the message is not. Okay, the message is not rich man bad, poor man good. The message here is not, nor is the message, that poverty, that material need puts you on the inside track to heaven. It's not what it says at all. No, the Bible means what it says when it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what James is acknowledging here are just some facts of life in the real world. Some facts of life in the real world, such as the fact that it's ridiculous to, to play favorites, to seek to ingratiate oneself to the rich, the powerful, the influential in this world. Because James says, or just the fact of the matter is this, quite frequently, most often, it is the powerful, the influential, the wealthy, the elite, who make life hard for us as followers of Jesus. And that's not universally true, because again, the principle is not rich man bad. But, but what he is saying is, listen, in their day, when you're being dragged into court, when you're being persecuted for your faith, it's not the powerless doing it to you, it's the powerful. So be very, very careful, he's saying. Don't go play favorites with those people, because they don't always have your best interest in mind. An, another very real fact of life in, in a fallen world, he says, is, is this. It, again, it's not that, that poor people have the inside track to heaven, but it is that those who experience poverty, who know poverty of material, poverty of the soul, well, in many cases, they are the ones who are far more attentive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? <laughs> because they know they have a need. They know that life 
hasn't worked out well for them. And they may be more open, attentive to listening to the hope that's found in the gospel. After all, did you remember? Did you know? The first words Jesus ever spoke at the inauguration of his public ministry, Luke 4.18, when he came to the synagogue in Capernaum and and was asked to read from the scripture the first words Jesus spoke in public that indicated he was a rabbi to be reckoned with were these, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because I've come to preach good news to the poor. And when you go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, as far as the Bible reveals to us, his longest and and his most substantive, his most memorable, content-rich sermon, the very first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount is this, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so the the reason I say that that what, what James is driving at here is a principle of mercy, as opposed to merely a principle of fairness or a, a principle of equality, but mercy, well, really it's twofold. Because on one hand, he's saying, he's saying to consciously treat the poor, the needy, the broken among us with dignity. If somebody comes into your, your congregation in shabby clothes and, and strange mannerisms and, and whatever else it may be, to treat such a, a human being with dignity as having just as much intrinsic worth and value as anyone else who's walked through the door. Well, you know what that does? That allows that person then to to clearly hear of the mercy of Jesus Christ that they need. They haven't been turned off and shunned and marginalized like they are perhaps everywhere else in the world. They can hear the message of the mercy of Jesus that leads them to eternal life. And in the same way, to, to be a person who doesn't show partiality, well, that's really acting on a principle of mercy is because when we we show favor to the wealthy, to the influential, to the powerful, again, for the sake of what they can do for us, as they come through our doors, as we encounter them in the world, well, the reason we need to avoid showing them partiality is, is I I think, because James knows it's possible that if we are, do play favorites, and we do treat them more generously with with our time and attention, well, we may Fool them into thinking they've got nothing to fear in life, in death. And the fact of the matter is this, they need the mercy of Jesus just as much as the poor man does. Just as much as every man, woman, and child does. Furthermore, in the church, among those of us who are already saved, refusing to play favorites for any reason, refusing to show partiality for any reason, And in any way, what that does is it it magnifies the Lord's mercy. When we treat each other fairly and openly and kindly and generously, regardless of what we see on the face, regardless of of what is presented to us in this person, well, the, the message that we affirm time and again is that the ground really is level at the foot of the cross. That we all need Jesus in order to be saved, and we all need Jesus in order to flourish. That we all need to come to the Lord the same way. And that leads us, third and finally, the last thing I want to zero in on this morning. We look at the problem of partiality and the principle of mercy. Well, that leads us in verses 8 and 9 to what I call the practice, practice which magnifies Jesus. The practice, the habit, the behavior which magnifies Jesus. 
You may recall, and in fact you should recall because Matt just read this for us uh, a little bit ago during our worship time in song and in scripture, that Jesus told his disciples on the last night of his earthly life, he said, the world's going to know that you're mine. The world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. That's what's going to mark you out as, as mine. And that's true. I mean, Jesus meant it when he said it. But you know, as I studied this passage here in James this week, it occurred in a way that I'd never really thought about before, that when Jesus said that, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another, that when Jesus said that, he meant more than merely the fact that they would love one another. That Simon and Andrew and James and John and Matthew and whoever, that they were going to just, just be really you know, tight with each other. And by the virtue of the fact that they and Mary Magdalene and the others, that they loved each other, that they would know and stand out in the world as his disciples. It had to be more than the fact. Because the fact of the matter is, the guys down at the bar love one another. The girls on the volleyball team love one another, right? The kids on the playground who, who run out there together, they, many of them, they love one another, right? There are all kinds of groups, people, affiliations, associations of people who love one another. And so when Jesus said, the whole world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another, he had to mean more than merely the fact. Because lots of people love one another. And what looking at James reminded me, or really, as I said, revealed to me, is that when Jesus made that statement, his message was that it would be the nature of their love for one another that proved them, that showed them to be his disciples. Not the fact, but the way that the people of God love one another would be different. That's what will distinguish us from every other group. Because you search the New Testament, and, and, and there are many more and probably many clearer examples than this. But as you just even scan the New Testament, what you discover about Christ-like love, about the impartial, generous nature, the deep, deep love of Jesus, which is vast, unmeasured, and boundless and free, what you discover is, is that Christ-like love, well, for one thing, it's more about action than emotion. It is a love that is more about action than emotion. We've talked before how the supreme Greek New Testament term for love is agape. And agape is a love, it's not a flutter in your tummy. It's, it's not a stirring in your heart. It's, it's an action. Agape love is love only known by the action that it prompts. And Christ-like love is more about action. There is emotion, but it's more about action. Secondly, the kind of love that magnifies Jesus, the kind of love that James wants us to practice here is far more about opportunity than proximity. More about opportunity than proximity. If you remember the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told, it began with a question. Somebody raised their hand and said, Teacher, who is my neighbor? The Bible says, Your word says, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus made it very clear that it's not just the person who lives to the right, to the left, the floor above you, the floor below you, the cubicle next to you. Proximity is part of it, but opportunity is more. And then he went on to tell this, really, what would have been to them, it's mind-blowing story of a Jew who was beaten and robbed and a Samaritan, a hated enemy, who came along and ministered to his need, not because they lived next door to one another, but because the opportunity presented itself. And Christ-like love is about opportunity. I see you. I approach you. I inquire about you. 
I see a need and I, I meet it. Not because it's going to do something for me, but because God put you in my path. Christ-like love, impartial love, genuine love. Thirdly, it's more about initiative than it is about response. Christ-like love is, is initiating love. We won't take the time to turn there, but maybe you'd want to read it on your own in 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John 4, 9 through 11, it says that God showed his love. The way God demonstrated his love for us is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be a sacrifice for sin. He took the initiative, right? He sent his son. We didn't deserve it. We didn't know his name. We didn't understand the plan. At the time Jesus came, we didn't even know we had a need. But God sent him. God took the initiative to send his son. And then John says this in 1 John 4. He says, listen, that example of God sending his son, taking the initiative for us, that's how we're supposed to love one another. The Christ-like love is more about taking the initiative than it is showing up, sitting down, and waiting for someone to come to me that I might respond. It's more, fourthly, about service than self. The kind of love which magnifies Jesus is far more about servanthood than it is about self. We've touched on this in a number of ways already. But again, Jesus, the last night of his life, what did he say? He said, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay his life down for his friends. That he, she, be willing to, to sacrifice their own comfort, their own resources, for the sake of blessing someone else. And then fifth, at least finally for our purposes today, the kind of love that James is calling us to be marked by, the kind of love that will show that we are his disciples, dwells far much more on, on, on the eternal than it does on the earthly. Pastor Greg very vividly reminded us last Sunday in his message, the Bible says we are to set our minds on things above. It doesn't mean look up at the sky a lot, but it means to think on the things that matter most to God, to pursue the things that God says are worth pursuing, to remember that everything in this life will ultimately turn to dust, but, but the treasures that we store in heaven the work that we do in the name of Jesus lasts forever. And frankly, the Bible says the thing that matters most to God are people and where they're going to spend eternity. So we need to set our mind on things above. Christ-like love is more about the eternal than it is about the earthly. In other words, what, what James is really saying here, to kind of get this down to something we can kind of grab a hold of, the kind of love that James has in mind here that the people of God are to show one another is rooted in the example of Christ. It's not rooted merely in common shared interests. It's the example of Christ. And that's why in wrapping up this, this admonition on playing favorites, James can confidently say in verses 8 through 9, listen church, he says, if you are fulfilling the royal law, the royal law, according to the scripture, and that law is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Isn't that what as believers were called to strive for? The, the well done of Jesus? Well done, good and faithful servant. He says, listen, if you are pursuing, loving your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You're on the right track, sister. You're on the right track, brother. You're on the right track, church. But if you show partiality, if you're a cold shoulder kind of person, you're committing sin and convicted by the law 
as transgressors. Couldn't be any clearer than that. A practice that magnifies Jesus is action-driven, opportunity-driven, initiative-taking, sacrifice-making, eternally-focused, no-playing-favorites, impartial love. That's what it's all about. A little earlier in the message I used, I referred to the old line, familiar perhaps to a number of us, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that's true. We all come to salvation the same way. That that anyone who wants to be saved has to come humbly, has to come repentantly of their sin, and has to cast themselves on the death and resurrection, faith in the death and resurrection of Christ alone for our sin, alone for redemption. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Well, based on what we've seen here today, I think James's message to those of us who've been there and done that, who've been to the cross humbly, repentantly, trusted Christ for salvation, his message, and therefore the big idea of today's sermon is this, the ground must also be level in every local church. The ground must be level in every local church. Partiality is not an option. Preference is prohibited because favoritism kills flourishing and completely neutralizes our witness to the lost. Father, we Lord, we ought to be really challenged as I am by these words. Not my words, Father, but your word to make it so plain to say that if we're pursuing the law of love, the royal law of loving one's neighbor as ourself, we're doing well, and if we're not, boy, we're really, we're on the wrong track, we're in sin. Father, I, I thank you that, 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 that far more often than not, what I have seen and experienced here in our church family is, is, is this kind of love that James is calling us to here, but Father, we're, we're far from a perfect church. We're far from perfect people. I'm certainly far, far from a perfect pastor. But we can practice this and we can grow in it with your help. Father, I pray for those of us who may be in a very particular way today, just as I think about it now, I hadn't thought about it before, but are being challenged, even convicted in our own heart about a, a relationship where we have been the shunner or we have shown partiality, or we have neglected some for the sake of others, Father, that, that if that, that conviction is present and there, that we'd respond to it. Father, there's nothing like the freedom that comes with confession and forgiveness. And Father, for those of us who may not be there today, but, but we want to love well, we want to, to shun impartiality, we want to pursue authentic unconditional love. Father, help us. Help us to do it. Father, because we want the light of Jesus to shine brightly through our lives. We want the world to know that we are Christians by our love for one another. Most of all, we, we want to do well in the sight of our Heavenly Father. Lord, take the things of truth that have been spoken here today and, and seal them to our hearts and move them to places of action in our lives and let all the rest just slip away so that we might go into the next week, and whatever it holds, following Jesus more closely than ever. 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen.